0: This is the Daily Signal podcast for Monday, September 17th. I'm Rob Bluey, Editor-in-Chief.
1: And I'm Ginny Maltabano, contributor to The Daily Signal.
0: Today is Constitution Day, and we're celebrating the 231st anniversary of the Constitutional Convention delegates signing the Constitution in 1787 in Philadelphia. On today's show, we'll discuss the proper role of government and the perils of socialism with Walter Williams.
1: We also spoke with Chris Steyerwalt about his new book, Every Man a King, A Short, Colorful History of American Populist. Steierwalt is the politics editor for Fox News Channel.
0: We'll also share your letters and an incredible story about two football coaches. Walter Williams is one of The Daily Signal's most popular columnists, and for good reason. His work explaining free markets and the dangers of socialism have made him a nationally known economist. Williams recently visited the Heritage Foundation to deliver the first in a series of lectures on the free market. Ginny, you had the opportunity to interview him. What did you talk about?
1: Well, first I asked Dr. Williams why socialism is so popular right now and what flaws does the system have?
2: Well, I think that socialism is very popular among people in general and one of the reasons is is that socialism implies big government. And big government allows people to do things that if they did the same thing privately, they'd go to jail. Such as uh, taking, if I took your money to give to somebody else, I'd go to jail. But if you can get Congress to do that, uh, you don't go to jail. I think that if you just look at the evidence around the world, You look at nations that are closer to the free market versus nations that are closer to socialism, you find that nations that are closer to free markets, the people have greater human rights protections and they're richer. The nations that are closer to socialism, the people have few uh, human rights protections and they're much poorer.
1: Next, I asked Dr. Williams why the left's policies are so detrimental to the African American community.
2: If you look at one of the major tenets of liberalism, it's things like the minimum wage or public education. And both of these institutions or laws have played havoc with the black community. The liberals have always supported the minimum wage, and the minimum wage has the effect of uh, discriminating against the least skilled people, and the least skilled people in the labor market are teenagers in general, and black teenagers in particular. You can read more of Walter Williams' work
0: at dailysignal.com and even better, subscribe to our Morning Bell email newsletter and you'll get his column delivered to your inbox each Wednesday morning.
1: We created the Morning Bell to be your one-stop source for credible news reporting and insightful commentary on the issues that are shaping the agenda.
0: Sign up now at dailysignal.com. Just click on the connect button at the top of the page and subscribe today.
1: Up next, our interview with Chris Dyerwald. We'll be right back.
0: Want to learn how to podcast from some of the best in the business? Then you'll want to register for the Leadership Institute's Conservative Podcasting School on October 15th and 16th in Arlington, Virginia. The Heritage Foundation and the Daily Signal are proud sponsors of this event. Sign up today at leadershipinstitute.org. And as a listener of this podcast, you can get $10 off. Just use book club as the promo code. Can't make it in person? The training will also be streamed live. Again, it's leadershipinstitute.org. Chris Steyerwalt is the politics editor for Fox News Channel and author of the brand new book, Every Man a King, a short, colorful history of American populists. He also writes the daily Fox News Halftime Report and co-hosts with Dana Perino, their popular podcast, Perino and Steierwalt. I'll tell you what. Chris, it's great to have you on our show.
3: I want the interview to stop right here. I think you've nailed it. You've, per, you've said all of the important things, and now I should just go before I get myself in trouble.
0: Well, <laughs> but we have to sell some books.
3: <laughs> all right. OK. Right. So,
0: so um, you know, you often hear that America has never seen anything like the presidency of Donald Trump. And in some respects, I certainly think that's true. But your book recounts many other example, examples of populists and their rise to power. So I want to ask to begin, what lessons can we learn from our own history?
3: Well, don't panic is a good one. Um, the the amount of alarm, the amount of anxiety, the amount of upset uh, that, and some of it quite deserved, uh, that has greeted the Trump presidency has been as much a reflection of the, I hate to say it, but the ignorance uh, of the American electorate when it comes to our own history as anything else and you know one of the only the only public i only take two public positions on issues in my life one is that election day should be a federal holiday uh and everybody should go vote in person um but the other one is we are in such desperate need of civics and his and american history education because people obviously are alarmed when things look totally different and by the way Our current moment, especially given the fact that 9-11 changed – it didn't change the discussion. It stifled this energy that was growing at a fast clip uh, at the turn of the century. But given the fact that this looks – so, our moment looks so different than much of the past 25 years, given all of that, people uh, understandably would panic. But you don't have to go very much farther past that. You don't have to reach into antiquity. If you think about what was happening in this country 50 years ago, or you think about the stretch of American history between 1963, let's say with the Kennedy assassination, and the fall of Saigon in the spring of 1975, that was 12 years of incredible turmoil and populist revolt and bloodshed and, I mean, riots in dozens and dozens and dozens of cities and all of those things. That was not that long ago. We go through these cycles. This is part of being who we are.
1: Well, Chris, you make some great points there. And I want to ask you a little bit more specifically about President Trump. How do we see President Trump's policies reflected in his populist rhetoric? And are there any examples where perhaps they've been in conflict?
3: Well, Trump is is an attitudinal populist more than anything else, right? Um, Certainly, you would say that his... The, the populist rebellion that he led or that chose him uh, is substantially focused, and you have seen this very much in his administration's policy, on white working class voters, especially in the upper Midwest. Um, he has taken very, very clearly the lesson from the 2016 election to be to focus on those voters in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Wisconsin. Uh, who delivered by, by a breathtakingly narrow margin the presidency to him. And yeah. when we talk about uh, adding tariffs to steel and aluminum coming into the United States as a, a first thing for him, uh, when we see that, we see Trump uh, honoring the populist movement that, that led him to the White House. Um, but in other things, of course, and, and this is sort of what's interesting, Populism doesn't carry with it any political ideology per se. Bernie Sanders is just as much of a populist as Donald Trump is in the sense that they both want to be leading revolutions. They both believe that they're leading movements that are aimed at taking down elites and taking down people in positions of authority who have rigged the game for their own benefit. That's both of their theses. However, they just differ on who – what constitute those elites – And what do you want to do to him?
0: Well, Chris, as you know, President Trump has an approval rating among Republicans near or above 90 percent, depending on the poll. How much of his populism is a factor in those numbers? And what does it say about the Republican Party of today? Well, I think
3: if you if you have the if you have the New Deal coalition, you're going to have New Deal policies. Um, The parties are switching lanes. And we're watching it happen. Um, the old Democratic coalition, the forged by the Great Depression, um, annealed during uh, the uh, Great Society in Vietnam, all of all of that coalition that was con- that had the two major constituencies of uh, minority voters and working class whites. That was the basic coalition of the Democratic Party, uh, and the Republicans were the party of college educated, sh- the the core component of the Republican electorate were college-educated white folks, suburbanites, right? That was that they start, Republicans started winning with college-educated white voters with Eisenhower and never stopped. Um, and that has been their, their core thing. Now what's happening is, and uh, there was a really fascinating Quinnipiac poll out this week that talked about where do, you know, on character issues, if, if you can have an economy that is as robust as this one, and you can have a country that's essentially at peace, um, and you can still have a president with an overall job approval rating in the 30s, something is up. So you look through and what you know who likes what, who likes what, who likes what. You get down to the end, the only group, the only demographic subgroup that still has majority approval at 51% uh, for Trump are white voters without college degrees. As the Republican Party comes to be more dependent and reliant on those voters, it will change what the Republican Party acts like and it will change what the priorities of the party are. And that just is a function of that's just political math.
1: Chris, you've mentioned how populism comes in waves. It comes in cycles. How do you think that the Democrats will respond to President Trump's populism? Will they nominate their own populist, or perhaps go into a different direction?
3: You know, if you heard uh, Barack Obama recently hit the campaign trail and he gave a speech and he was talking about <clears throat> people resist change. And, you know, it was an allusion to his 2008 candidacy. And it sounds so funny <clears throat> coming from him. Um, but the truth is, of course, in 2008, he was running as, a, as somewhat of a populist insurgent he was he was taking on Hillary Clinton he was taking on the democratic establishment he was speaking up for what what he said were forgotten or misbegotten uh individuals uh and we're going to fight for them and we are we are the change that we have been waiting for uh, um the for democrats now they have to realize a couple of things Trump is the reaction to Obama in the in the clearest. You can sometimes say, "Well, this president was a response to you know this election was a response to that election." Donald Trump's presidency and election uh, reflected uh, things that were unleashed by Republicans and by Obama among the GOP. Right? The, this is the this. It's like, oh yeah. Well, how, how do you like it now? And, and people thought that Republicans might go for an anti-Obama. They wanted an Obama of their own. Who turn the volume up even higher? And <clears throat> you, we are now at a point where we are so divided. It is so rotten out there, and people are so angry at each other. And politics infects literally every corner of our society. There are no 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 TV show, no football game, <clears throat> no theater product. Nothing can be. Nothing can be free. Nothing can be apolitical. And. That is – that's where we are. So for Democrats, the question becomes – there's a real easy – I wouldn't say easy, but there's a real clear path for Democrats in 2020, which is nominate somebody normal. If you just nominate – you know, if the Democrats hadn't nominated Hillary Clinton, if they had – just imagine what the 2016 election would have looked like if the Democrats had chosen – and I know they wouldn't have done this. But if, if Tim Kaine had been their nominee, they would have – it would have been a – if they would have run an anodyne, normal politician, without the corruption, without the bag, you know, Hillary Clinton was the worst. De- Democrats have not picked a worse nominee. I don't know since William Jennings Bryan the third time. I mean, you, you got to go back past Dukakis. You got to go. You got to start. You got to start hauling back. Uh, I guess worse than. I guess as bad as McGovern anyway. And she was a total total wreck. If they would have picked anybody reasonable, they would have probably been fine. The question for Democrats now is this same populist energy, the Bernie Sanders people, this revolt is in their party, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Presley in Massachusetts and Gillum in Florida, and it's on. And the revolt is there. So do they match the Republicans' uh, populist counter-revolution with a yet another escalation of these pitchfork wars? Or do they find their way to pick some sort of centrist sounding or normal sounding uh, politician and on that decision will hinge their success and failure?
0: Well, it's certainly going to be interesting to watch. Now, Chris, on the cover of the book, you have uh, pictures of Andrew Jackson, Teddy Roosevelt, Ross Perot, uh, certainly many colorful figures, uh, as the subtitle of your book says. The title is Every Man a King. Now, it's a quote from Huey Long, one of the other politicians that you write about in the book. Tell us about the meaning of that title.
3: Well, Huey Long was just as uh, just as nutty as a peach orchard boar. Uh, he was... Uh, uh, <laughs> He, Huey Long's populism – so, by the way, we should remember, most populism in American history, other than Andrew Jackson, um, when the, who we talk about in the book, um, other than Jackson, and then George Wallace – so you get up to George Wallace, populism is a left-lurching a left thing because it's usually economic in focus, and it's usually about uh, give me what some of you got. And Huey Long was going to confiscate – he had – he claimed, and it may be even partially true, he claimed that he had 7 million uh, members of what he called the Share Our Wealth Society across the country in 1935. 1935 was a so scary of a year for the United States. Um, Fascism was uh, on the march around the world, and it it had real devotees here right? This was not, we were not immune to what was happening as the the second dip of the Great Depression comes on. And Americans are starting to think maybe this whole republic concept, maybe this whole liberal democracy concept is a bad idea. Maybe we can't afford it. And maybe what we need to do as people like Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh and uh, Joe Kennedy said, maybe what we need to do is modernize here and try a little bit of uh, light, light fascism. And Huey Long uh, was was there to deliver, and his idea was they were going to confiscate every fortune, I think more than eight million dollars, and redistribute the money <clears throat> across the populace. Now, of course, Huey would have taken a big fat chunk of it for himself if he got the chance. But we're going to redistribute the wealth across everywhere, so everybody has a chicken in every pot, a car in every garage, every man can afford a home, everybody will be a king, everyone will be elevate. We will elevate everybody at once, and of course, like a lot of populace, he says. It's just right there, and it's so easy to do, and the only reason that they don't do it is because they don't want you to have it. I know the secret, and if you give me, if you make me a dictator, essentially, uh, and he, he, didn't, he didn't bat an eye talking about that uh, a dictatorship, or he said perfect democracy would look like a dictatorship because the, the dictator, the leader, would just be acting out the will of the people, and what, what's wrong with that? And he, if you give him the power to confiscate these fortunes, Spread the money around, and everybody is going to live great, and why don't we just go ahead and do that? It sounds foolish now, but in 1935, when people were desperate and income inequality was a a much more painful way, uh, it probably sounded pretty good to a lot of folks.
0: Well, I'm, I, I appreciate you recounting that story, and there's, there's so many more like it in the book. Um, you know, in the dedication you write to your children, quote, keeping this republic will be your job, not mine. Uh, you know that I'm a father uh, myself, and that really resonated with me as well, particularly as, as my son is now studying uh, Virginia history and, uh, and so many of the great figures who came from, uh, from Virginia. What do you hope that your readers take away from the book?
3: Be of good cheer. Uh, This 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 is okay. Uh, That doesn't mean that everything that's happening is okay, but it means we need to have confidence in the fact that we have been having been through worse. The the purpose of faith, whatever, everybody believes in something. But the purpose of faith is to fix our eyes on something that is beyond our current struggle, right beyond the current thing that we're doing. And very often, and this is in, certainly in biblical terms, the Israelites recount, oh, we suffered here, oh, we suffered there, and then it was bad, and then we came out, and then it was okay. And it is important for Americans when they are concerned, when they are alarmed, when they feel bad about things. Sometimes it's good to go back and just say, okay, we stood right at the edge of the cliff several times before, and we didn't plunge in. And we're not going to do it again this time, because in the in the conclusion, I talk about the election of 1864. And if we can do that, right, if we can succeed in that moment of keeping a republic in the midst of a civil war, we can handle Donald Trump and Twitter.
1: Chris, on a lighter note, Rob and I are both fans of Dana Prino. She's mentored both of us. What's something you could share with our listeners about working with Dana.
3: She's actually she's actually huge. She's actually seven, seven, seven two. Uh, <laughs> weighs about three fifty. A lot of people think she's very, very tiny. Huge woman, enormous. Um, I can share with you about Dana Perino that I have never. You know is she has become a sister to me. She is a um, and, and this book wouldn't exist without her. But the thing I will tell you about Dana is she never lets her. Duty, professionally, exceed her humanity and her fundamental decency. Uh, She is so good at twinning those things together to be true to herself and true to the woman who God made her to be while simultaneously pursuing real excellence in journalism. Doing those things at the same time, Uh, she makes it look easy, but I know it's not.
1: Well, in your podcast with Dana, I'll tell you what has quickly become one of the most popular political podcasts. What has that experience been like?
3: They're just in it for the. They're just in it for the recipes. They just want to hear us talk <laughs> about food, and they listen to it. They listen to it. so that way they can say, "Oh, I'm uh, I'm listening to the political, brushing up on politics." But really, they're there because they want to talk. They want to hear us talk about what I ate, what Dana didn't eat. They want to hear us talk about. Dana's sister's diabetic cat, uh, who I make fun of, and they want to hear us be friends. And for us, what's really great is we don't get to see each other too often. I'm in New York all this week, so I get to see her every day. But I, we don't get to see each other too often. So having time set aside each week, with think about how nice it would be if with one of your dearest friends, there was a thing in your calendar that said every week you're going to go in and you're going to talk to this person for 45 minutes or an hour. Uh, That's a nice thing.
0: Well, Chris, it certainly is. And and it's one of my favorites. It's really a great listen. And I encourage our listeners of The Daily Signal podcast to certainly check it out. We wish you the best with the book. Uh, Thanks for joining us on today's show. You guys are
3: so kind to make time for me and very generous. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Chris.
0: Do you have an opinion that you'd like to share? I'm Rob Bluey, editor-in-chief of The Daily Signal and I'm inviting you to share your thoughts with us. Leave us a voicemail at 202-608-6205 or email us at letters at dailysignal.com. Yours could be featured on the Daily Signal podcast. Thanks for sending us your letters to the editor. Each Monday, we feature some of our favorites both on this show and in our Morning Bell email newsletter. Ginny, our colleague Ken McIntyre does a fantastic job putting these together each week. What's in the mailbag?
1: Well, Rob, first up, Henry Vance writes, Dear Daily Signal, the investigation by special counsel Robert Mueller, analyzed by Hans von Spakovsky on your podcast, needs to tell the public what the Russians supposedly did to affect the 2016 election and what effect their actions actually had. If there was no confirmed effect, there doesn't need to be an investigation. We also need to know what the Obama administration did to stop whatever the Russians were supposedly doing. It looks like the Obama administration decided to wait and try to connect everything to the Trump campaign. Can't we require Mueller to make a progress report and reveal what comes next?
0: And Mary Yelton of Linden, California writes. Dear Daily Signal, I have to say I was more than delighted to read Rachel Del Judas' article on her interviews at the Stark County Fair in Ohio. It's very telling of the heart of America. It was so encouraging to me to read each of these citizens' testimonies of their path to vote and support core American values. I'm a 60-year-old wife, army mom, grandmother, and CEO of a small C-corp in California that I started 13 years ago while off work due to back issues. My hope is restored. If there were eight you interviewed among just regular folks, think of all the others. Well, Ginny, one of the things that I think The Daily Signal does best is get outside of Washington, D.C. and tell these stories. So kudos to Rachel for her work in Ohio and uh, hopefully many more stories like that to come.
1: Yes, Rachel did a wonderful job. And your letters could be featured on next week's show. Send an email to letters at DailySignal.com or you can leave a voicemail message at 202-608-6205.
0: Next, we'll share this week's good news story.
1: Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme
0: Court. The NFL season is underway, and we're once again talking about all the controversies related to our flag and the national anthem. But today, we want to share a different story related to football. This one, an inspiring tale involving a father and a son.
1: The story begins with Kansas City Chiefs running backs coach DeLan McCullough's quest to find his biological parents. He's a former NFL player who coached college football and is married with four children of his own. But he always wanted to know his birth mother and father.
0: Little did McCullough know that his search would lead him to the very man who once recruited him to play at Miami University in Ohio. That man is Sherman Smith, the former running backs coach for the Seattle Seahawks and offensive coordinator for the Washington Redskins.
1: McCullough first met Smith in high school and looked up to him as a mentor. But neither man knew of the deeper connection until recently. Smith told K I R O Radio's Dory Monson how it happened.
3: When he said her name, my heart dropped because I knew I knew Carol Briggs. Yeah, you know, and I knew Carol Briggs. In a manner of which, you know, that I shouldn't be surprised if he said, you know, hey, you're my father. (laughs) So, you know, and so when he said it, he said, I asked her who was my dad, and she said, you. The same way that he said he felt when Carol told him I was his father, it was, you know, took his breath away. It was the same way I felt when he told me she said I was his father, you know. So I was surprised, you know, I was shocked, you know, I was man, life. you know, it was like, boom, you know, I I was glad I was sitting down because, you know, that's not what I expect, expected to hear when we were, when we started that converse, when we started our conversation.
0: Ginny, I just love stories like this that have a happy ending. And it's another reminder why choosing life, in this case, adoption is just so incredible.
1: And it reminds us what a small world this is, Rob.
0: It sure does.
1: We're going to leave it there for today. The Daily Signal podcast is broadcast from the Robert H. Bruce radio studio at the Heritage Foundation.
0: You can find it on the Ricochet Audio Network, along with Problematic Women and The Right Side of History. All of our shows can be found at DailySignal.com slash podcasts.
1: You can also subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review or give us feedback.
0: Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Daily Signal and Facebook.com slash The Daily Signal News.
1: The Daily Signal podcast will be back tomorrow with Kate and Daniel.
0: Have a great week.
1: You've been listening to The Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.